All right, if you're just uh, coming in, page 18 in our notes. And if you don't have notes, then Larry has some and Ken has some. So get your hand up, get their attention, and they'll get a set to you, page 18. And while you're getting the notes, page 18 and lesson 5 of Stolen Identity, just mention a few things that are coming up. Two weeks from today, we will observe uh, the Lord's Table, Communion, for the entire hour, 9.30, our worship hour, will be devoted to uh, Communion. So just uh, be aware of that, and uh, we'll take a break from our series in First Peter and uh, devote ourselves to the Lord's Table. And then uh, three weeks from today is the first of four weeks for both our newcomers orientation and new members class. We do those periodically uh, throughout the year. There are two different classes, one that I lead, one Pastor Matt leads. The newcomers orientation is for those who are newcomers. If you've never taken that, then consider yourself a newcomer, and we would encourage you to take it. It gives you information about our church and our history and our beliefs and what we hope to accomplish in the future and our philosophy and so on. It's in an informal setting so that you can ask any questions you might have. And it's designed for information to help assist you in making a decision as you prayerfully consider where the Lord would have you to join and serve. Now, we say this all the time, but we really mean it and we're honest about it. It is for information purposes only, so we do not uh, come after you after it's over and say, so what do you think, when are you going to join, any of that kind of stuff. But you should take it and then take the time you need to prayerfully consider whether to join. And if you decide no, then uh, let us help you find a place to do that because it's important that you be aligned with a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. And if this is not the one for you, that's okay. But you need to be in that process of figuring that out. And we want to help you figure that out with the newcomer's orientation. So that starts three weeks from today, May the 26th, and it'll go for four successive weeks during this hour. So we'll be in another room together going through a booklet of material. So if you're new, if you'd be interested in those four weeks, then just show up on uh, the 26th and attend all of those if you can. If you miss one, uh, I've made arrangements with folks in the past to go to their house or meet them at the office and go through any lesson that you might have missed. It's that important. Newcomers orientation. Same time is the new members class, and that is for people who have gone through the newcomers orientation, who have recently joined the church uh, since the last time we had a new members class. And this is to acclimate those who are new members to the church and areas of, of service and, uh, and so on. So that's four weeks as well. Pastor Matt leads that, and uh, he's going to send an invitation directly to those of you who uh, have recently joined, joined since the last time we had the new members class. Okay, So that will be three weeks from today. And one caveat on that, one disclaimer, and that is uh, my class will start three weeks from today, the newcomer's orientation, if uh, I am not going to China. I told you last week that uh, I have an opportunity possibly to go to China, but uh, I found out it's two weeks instead of one week. And it's always been one week, and so I was surprised. I didn't look at the dates uh, carefully enough. It's actually two weeks. I can't do two weeks. I told them I can't do two weeks. They're trying to figure out if one week will work, and I don't know that yet. But I should know that. I will know that this week. Okay. So for now, it's on to start on the 26th. If that changes because I'll be gone that day, then we'll just move everything uh, back a bit. Okay. Uh, so please make note of that. And um, 
then also our annual Memorial Day picnic, uh, May the 27th. Monday, May 27th is Memorial Day this year. And every year on Memorial Day, we have a picnic. It's going to be at Lake Erie Metro Park. That's listed in your bulletin. So you can find the details there. You have to pay $5 to get your vehicle into the park. So lots of our people, you know, get in each other's trunks and all that stuff so they don't have to pay the, uh, the 5 bucks. Got a lot of cheapskates around here. So it reminds me of the old days trying to sneak into the drive-in or something. You know, I've told you I've told you that story before. When I was uh, when I was a kid, we were so stupid that uh, we were in this one guy's like uh, Bonneville or Catalina. You know how big those trunks are on those, and we could fit like five of us in that trunk. So we have one guy driving and five people in the trunk. <laughs> They'll never know that the tailpipe's dragging as we go in. So we're in there and we're trying to be quiet. We're all squeezed in there, and we hear you know, our guy pull up. And uh, the attendant says, will you open the trunk? And he says, uh, he says why? And he says, because I think there might be somebody in there. He says, well, what if there is somebody in there? <laughs> then you won't be able to get in. And so he throws it into reverse, and he peels back out. And we're all in there, you know, and just getting motion sick and the whole bit. But anyhow, we actually got caught twice uh, doing that. I, I don't know why. We never figured it out that they could tell that there were a bunch of people in his trunk and that nobody goes to drive-in by themselves, okay? But back in those days, you used to, I don't know now if there are, are drive-ins. Do you pay by vehicle or pay by person? But you had to pay by how many people were in your vehicle back in the day. So that's why we did that. So if you want to do that, there'll be no questions asked for conscience sake to get into the Lake Erie Metro Park, but it does cost $5 to get your vehicle uh, in there. And, um, and uh, we will do that on May the 27th. At noon, we will start eating. And uh, so just make note of that and hope you can be with us. Page 18, Lesson 5 of 6 in our series, Stolen Identity. You see that on the screen. It's also on the front cover of your notes. So we have this lesson and next week to complete our six weeks together. Briefly, to review, we have seen that Everybody has a, operates out of a sense of identity. We all do, whether consciously or unconsciously. We have a view of ourselves. And if that view of ourselves is inaccurate, uh, if, or if, I should say if it's unhealthy, then it will result in un, unhealthy uh, actions, unhealthy behavior. And so if someone thinks of themselves as worthless, then that will result in unhealthy, unhealthy actions. If someone thinks of themselves too highly and they think I'm worth everything, then that will result in unhealthy actions as well because everyone and everything is now subservient to me because I'm, because I'm worth it. Uh, and so the view that we have of ourselves is extremely important because it gives rise to uh, the, way we, the way we behave and the way we interact with others. The Bible has a view of self, and we've started to see that, but we've also examined secular views of people and the way we are told we ought to view ourselves. And one of those was in Lesson 1. We saw that people like uh, Adler and Maslow said that there are certain needs that have to be met in the life of each person before the person can be all that they, they should be. And we've seen that even Christian psychologists have grabbed onto that idea and said that we really can't love other people until we learn to love ourselves, and we really can't love ourselves until we get the stuff that Maslow and Adler said that you, you have to have. 
And this whole idea that we need to love ourselves at all is quite controversial. In fact, I would be so direct to say that it contradicts what Scripture teaches. So there's much wrapped up into this idea of a proper identity, but all of us has one, whether we consciously know what it is or think about what it is, and we operate out of it. And so it's important for us to indeed think about it and make sure that we adopt a view of ourselves and others that is accurate from God's standpoint. And today we're on page 18, lesson number 5. Having looked at some false views of self from a secular standpoint, having looked at how it results in behavior like performance and desire for approval in the last couple of lessons, now today we want to begin looking at a a biblical view of self. And I want to call your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4. If you're able to juggle your Bible and the notes, then turn to 1 Corinthians 4. If you can't, then just listen as I read. First Corinthians, of course, is written by Paul, and many of you are familiar with the uh, career of Paul, know something about him, and that will become uh, important in helping us understand what he says to those to whom he writes in First Corinthians chapter 4 about how he is viewed and how he views himself. He speaks of that in First Corinthians 4. In verse 3, he says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. So just stop there for a second. So here's a guy with a view of himself that does, and he's telling you where it does not derive. (laughs) My view of myself does not derive from what other people think about me. And my view of myself from you directly Corinthians, or any human court, uh, a a legal court. Uh, I've been, I, Paul, have been hauled into court. Just like we saw in the first hour, the apostles were often hauled before authorities and told what they could and could not do. So Paul has has been in court. Uh, He's had opinions expressed about him uh, at all levels. And he says here in verse number three, it doesn't, it matters to me very little what you judge me to be or what any human court judges me to be. Now, this is in the context, remember, of the Corinthians and their sinful view of people. I'll just say very directly sinful view, fleshly view, natural view of of people rather than a godly perspective on people. If you go back to chapter 3, if you have headings in your Bible, you see above verse 1, it says divisions in the church. And you all are familiar, many of you are familiar with this with passage. Verse 3, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? One says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it, made it grow. 
And so here they are saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. They even had a group that said, I'm of Christ. (laughs) That was the really spiritual group. So they're all rendering verdicts, opinions about these different guys, Paul being one of them. And so that's why when you come to verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, look, it matters little to me what you think of me. So I don't base my identity on what you all think about me. And further, I don't base my opinion on what authorities think about me either. Now, you, if you stop there, you could say to yourself, well, that's the way I feel. Who cares what anybody else thinks? You know, uh, and, and notice the pomposity in a statement like that. Who cares what anybody else thinks? You know, the only thing that matters is what I think about me. So if Paul stopped there, you could still be left with that possibility. But notice he doesn't stop there. He says, I care very little what you think. I care very little what authorities think. But then he goes on to add this. I do not even judge myself at the end of verse 3. So it's not what we often do. We often say, yeah, right on, Paul. Who cares what other people think? It's only what I think that matters. He goes to say, I don't care what you think. I don't care what the authorities think. The truth of the matter is, it doesn't really matter what I think about myself. Well then, <laughs> well then what? I mean, if it's not the Corinthians, if it's not the authorities, if it's not even what you think about yourself, then, then what matters? Who matters? And you know where he's going to go with this, right? Well, let me just ask, who's left? <laughs> I mean, if it's not Paul and it's not everybody else, the only person left is God. And Paul is going to go on to say, what really matters is what God thinks of me. And if, I, if, if I'm good with what God thinks of me, that will play out in the way I behave. So I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, verse 4, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who, who judges me. Now we'll get to that. That verse in uh, just, a, just a bit. So the only person left is, is God, and we're going to see that it's God's verdict on Paul that matters and motivates, that matters to him and motivates him in what he, in what he does. Now, let's just think about for a moment who Paul is. You all know a bit about the career of, of Paul. Saul of Tarsus, and then called by Jesus in Acts chapter 9, to be his apostle and his primary emissary to to the Gentiles in a spectacular conversion. But God had prepared Paul for this task. He had prepared Paul as a learned person. It's estimated that Paul knew five foreign languages. Paul knew the Judaism uh, as well as anyone. Uh, He gives in the book of Philippians, he gives his resume, and he says... As touching the law, I was a Pharisee. I knew it inside and out. He, he was taught at the, at the feet of Gamaliel, uh, one of the famous teachers of the day. So Paul was, Paul was well-educated, and God used that education in various settings in Paul's ministry. Acts chapter 17, when he goes to Athens, Greece, and he speaks to philosophers there, Paul can hold his own because Paul knows this, this stuff. And so Paul was quite an accomplished guy. 
He had quite a background. And for Paul to say, I don't even judge myself, that's quite a statement. Because here's a guy who could have said time and again, do you know who you're messing with? Do you know who you're dealing with? I'm Paul. And yet he says here in this kind of humility, I don't even judge myself and it doesn't matter what you think or what, any, what the authorities think. As we're going to see, it's ultimately what God thinks. Now, he says, you know, I don't, uh, I don't make any judgments about myself. But in fact, you can think of some, at least one passage where he, he does say something about himself, evaluating him, himself and his identity. You remember 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, 1 Timothy 1, 15? This is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom, what? King James says, I am chief. I'm the chief of sinners. The NIV says, of whom I am the worst. So he says, I am the, I am the worst of, of sinners. Well, man, you would think that this guy would be, you know, he's got low self-image. Right? But yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, I don't even, I don't even judge, judge myself. So how does, that, how does that happen? You know, Paul, on the one hand, to the Philippians, has this resume of his accomplishments. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he talks about being the, the worst of sinners, and yet he can say, I don't even judge myself. How do you put those together? It looks like he's judging himself. It looks like he's, he's aware of his accomplishments, and he's aware of his own his own sin. So how do you put those together? Here's the secret for Paul. Paul does not connect any of his actions, good or bad, to his identity. God does, Paul does not connect his sinful actions to his identity. He does not connect his righteous actions and accomplishments to his identity. He knows he's done them. He knows he's a horrible sinner. He knows he's committed great sin. He was a murderer. He murdered God's people before he came to Christ. He's aware of that. He knows his uh, resume. He's able to list it for purposes of making a point to those to whom he's writing. But both in his righteousness and in his sin, in neither of those does he connect those to his identity. He has them. He's done them. And he does them, but he doesn't connect them to his identity. And he's talking about his identity in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So he doesn't connect those to his identity. It's like C.S. Lewis said about uh, somebody who's humble. You know, Paul here is truly humble. He is gospel humble. But we need to make sure we understand what we mean by humility. And C.S. Lewis said, it's like this. If somebody is truly humble, you don't come away from meeting that person going, wow, that person's really humble. In fact, the thing that you come away with is not how self-effacing they were and, and all of that. Sometimes, you know, we think somebody is really humble because they talk about what a nobody they are and all that. And the more they talk about what a nobody they are, the more the more focus there is on them, right? C.S. Lewis said that the real test of somebody's humility is they weren't focused on themselves at all. You come away thinking how focused that person was on me. 
They're focused on other people. Their identity is not caught up in their problems, their sin, or all the good things and their accomplishments. And therefore, they are comfortable enough to invest themselves in other people. Now, I have counseled lots of people over the years, and I have counseled many a person who has come and said, you know, I just hate myself, and I have a low view of myself, and all that. And guess who we're talking about all the time? Now, I don't, you know, first meeting say, we quit talking about yourself, you know. You know, I give them 15 minutes, and I say, we quit talking about yourself. But, uh, but eventually, I try to get to the point to say, do you realize how focused on yourself you are? So what do you think the antidote, the answer would be for somebody who is self-absorbed on his or herself, either on their accomplishments or their lack of accomplishments, their sin, their problems, or either way, focused on themselves, what's the antidote to that, for that person? To become other-oriented, right? To begin to see themselves as an instrument, a vehicle in the life, lives of other people. One of the things that you will notice about people who are, who are regularly down and regularly negative is that they are often absorbed in themselves, thinking about themselves. And they need to channel themselves into other people. And so, here's what Paul does. Paul, he's aware of what he's done right. He's aware of what he's done wrong. First Timothy chapter 1, what he writes to the Philippians. But he doesn't connect his identity to any of those of those things. He is not, now hear this, so Paul is not thinking less of himself in his gospel humility. He's just thinking less of himself, thinking of himself less. Gospel humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now, if you and me, if you and I would think of ourselves le less, it would have profound effects on us. I mean, if you're, if you're tied to what other people think, like Paul was not, somebody issues a criticism to you, how well does that go? I mean, destroy, I mean, just destroy, I had a bad day, I mean, it could destroy your week, it could destroy your month, I mean, you could just be crushed. Because somebody criticized you. Now, why is that? Because you're tied to, your identity is tied to what other people think about you. And so I'm giving that to you as a test for you and for me. How well do you take criticism? If somebody says, can I come and tell you something? Can you say, yeah, please. <laughs> tell me. Evaluate whether it's accurate. If it's accurate, then how, what can I do to, to change it? In fact, not only is it not going to crush me, it's going to help me. So please, bring that, bring that on. I can't, here's another test. Can you be happy, genuinely happy, when somebody else is recognized, somebody else wins even though you're in competition with them? Just because of the satisfaction of seeing the thing well done. Or do you have to win? Are you focused on you and your accomplishments? Can you begin to see how freeing it is if you don't tie your well-being, your identity, to what you do wrong and to what you do right? 
Now you can just enjoy stuff and you can just enjoy people because it's good and because it's right and because it's done well, not because I'm in a contest with you. And this guy, Paul, had it. And he can say, I, don't, I care very little what you or any human court or even myself because I don't connect my bad stuff and I don't connect my good stuff Even though I'm aware of it, I don't connect it to my identity. Now, how is it that he manages that? Well, here's here's how. Verse number 3, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not, now, that does not make me innocent. And then he says, it is the Lord who judges me. That word that is translated innocent is really important because it's the same word that is translated justify in your New Testament. I, my conscience is clear, but my conscience doesn't justify me. Who does? The Lord. And how do, now you all know something about the Lord justifying, don't you? You know how he does that, right? I hope so because I you know, preached on it a bunch <laughs> and what justification is. And we had community groups that discussed it a few weeks ago. So what is it? What is it that makes me innocent? What is it that justifies me? It's not that I think what I think of myself. It's not what other people think of me. It's what God thinks of me And the only way I can be thought well of by God is through the person and work of Jesus. And in the person and work of Jesus, his perfect life and his death on my behalf, both of those are applied to me when I come to God believing who Jesus is and what he did, and God justifies me. That is, he declares me innocent, justified because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And Paul's the guy who like wrote the book on that. You know, he wrote Romans chapter 4. He wrote the book of Galatians. He understood that fully and that is why he is comfortable in his own skin. And he can say to these Corinthians who are clearly messed up, "Man, I would not want to pastor that church. Yikes." I have seen church vans that say First Corinthian, or just say Corinthian Baptist Church. I go, really, of all the names you could choose? Those guys? I mean, there had to be all kinds of neuroses going on in this church. There's all kinds of blatant sin going on. And into that, Paul writes, and he says, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, I'm comfortable in who I am. Not because of my accomplishments, certainly not proud of my sin, but the reason I am comfortable is because what makes me innocent is not what I think or you think or the authorities think. It's what God thinks through Jesus. And if I'm comfortable in that, it makes a really big difference. (laughs) Like, instead of I perform in order to get the verdict, instead of that, 
See, I perform, I do the stuff, and then when I mess up, I'm crushed because I'm trying to get the verdict. I'm trying to get the verdict from the mirror. I'm trying to get the verdict from other people. I'm trying to get the verdict from God. I'm performing to try to get the verdict. And therefore, my well-being is based upon how well I perform and how much I'm affirmed in my performance. And if that's not forthcoming, then I'm messed up. I don't feel good about myself. Because I've tied, unlike Paul, I've tied the bad things I do and I've tied the good things I do to my identity. And he's done neither. So I perform then to get the verdict. And Christianity is the only ism in the world. It's the only philosophy. It's the only religion in the world where you perform because the verdict is already in. You don't perform in order to get the verdict. You're actually motivated to perform because the verdict has been rendered. And once you're comfortable in the verdict being declared righteous, and once you're comfortable with the one who rendered the verdict, namely the God of the universe, now you're good to go. Now I can perform. It's not that I lay low. It's not that I don't, I don't put forth effort. Quite the contrary. Now I'm motivated to put forth effort. Because, forgive the language, just to be straight, I can screw up. I can mess up. And know that I'm still going to be okay. And, and, if I, and if I do well... I can just rejoice in the fact that something was done well and the fact that God allowed it to be done by me, my goodness. <laughs> so I can bring, give praise to him. And if, and if something is done well by somebody else, praise God for that. So Corinthians, so CBCers, forget all the competition. That's what they got going on. That's why they got the divisions and quarrels, Right? We got a competition going on. You know, and I, my identity and my well-being is tied to what these other people do or don't do and what they think of me and what they don't think of me. And, you know, I, I can't, did he give me a dirty look? I, I walked right by him. He didn't even say hello. And I'm a mess about it. And I've just been harboring that for a long time. And finally, I get up enough courage to go up to the pastor. And by the way, nobody's done this lately. But this has happened in the past, you know. And I finally get up the courage to go to the pastor and say, hey, is there a problem? Um, proceed. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Elaborate. What, what do you mean? Uh, well, you know, do you have a problem with me? Well, now I do. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, my response is usually like something, look, if I got a problem with you, you'll know about it, okay? If you have to ask, we're good, Okay? I mean, really, there is a biblical mandate, is there not? If you've got a problem, what do you do? Right? So, so you really don't, I'm just telling you up front, you don't have to come to me to say, do I have a problem with you? If I've got a problem with you, I'll let you know. Some of you have been let know. You know that, right? And I'll, hopefully I'll do it, you know, nice, and I'll do it Christ-like and all that, but I'll let you know. The Bible says to let you know, and you should do the same thing with me. But, you know, here's somebody whose well-being is tied to of course, not just me, anybody else, and how other people perceive them and how they treat them and the slights that they think they got, and they're bearing those regularly. And Paul would say, enough already. Christ is our verdict. 
And in Christ, the verdict has been rendered. And you don't have to worry about the opinion of other people. And you don't have to worry about what the authorities think. And you don't even have to focus on, on what you think of yourself and be focused on yourself and your own well-being and how you, how you feel about yourself at any given time. You can now are freed up to invest yourselves in other people because the verdict is already in. You're not performing for the verdict. The verdict is in. Now you can perform. Now you can serve freely and not worry. You know, last week I gave the illustration of folks who are afraid to interact with other people. You know, I'm just trying to let the rubber meet the road, trying to make it practical and giving you these kinds of illustrations. But that's one I alluded to last week, and I'll just mention it again. You know, somebody that just says, I can't interact with people. Well, that's baloney, you know? Just not to put too fine a point on it. Now, for most of us, that's, now when I say it's baloney, unless you've got some kind of, a, you know, some kind of an, an ism, a diagnosis or something, and I mean that in all sincerity. You know, there are people who have then problems that are diagnosed, that they're trying to work with, that kind of thing. Okay? So out, outside of that, you're a person who just says, I'm shy, I'm an introvert. It's not okay for you to say, I'm going to sit by myself and I'm not going to interact with God's people. It is not okay. Because Jesus says, Paul says, the Bible says, we have a bunch of one another commands. So how do we one another if we don't know one another? How do you? How do you pray for one another? How do you serve one another? How do you forgive one another? How do you accept one another? Over and over and over again, the assumption in the Bible is we interact with one another. And that's true for the introvert and the extrovert. Now, that means you'll, in, you'll interact as an introvert. It's okay. You don't have to be the life of the party. You don't have to be the quickest guy with the joke or gal. You're an introvert. That's your personality. That's fine. If it's hard for you, that's fine too because Jesus is okay with you. And you need to think of yourself less. And you need to stop thinking about what do they think about me. They'll think I'm a jerk. What if I say something wrong? Well, okay, you said something wrong. Jesus died for the wrong stuff you say. And God's still good with you. And the Lord God is pleased that you came out of your comfort zone for the sake of somebody else. Because that's what our Lord God does. Now, with all of that, look at page 18. And these next few pages take seven minutes exactly to get through it. A biblical view of self. Most of us have one or two activities that we're so excited, that are so exciting and so consuming that we lose ourselves in them. What are some activities or places where it happens to you? In those moments when we lose ourselves, we actually forget all about ourselves. The guy who loses himself playing a video game Forgets about how do I look? What do other people think of me? Instead, he's wrapped up in the game. The exact, op exact opposite of being self-conscious. And so you see where this is going. If I can be wrapped up in Christ, and then in turn be wrapped up in others, now I can lose myself in that, and all of the junk that I tend to worry about, and I used to fixate on, 
the, how I look and how am I perceived and all of that begins to fade into the background. So we've seen that, you know, what secular psychologists would say is, you know, if, uh, if you don't have a high view of yourself, then you need to start seeing what a great person you are. Start reminding yourselves of all your great qualities and all the great things that you are and, and all of that. Now, Paul had all of that, but he didn't attach his identity to it. And that's because, middle of page 18, the Bible clearly condemns self-love, the idea that I've got to love myself, so I've got to make this list of all these great things about me, is unbiblical. Second Timothy 3, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. That will be a characteristic of terrible times. Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Having an overinflated sense of self-importance is clearly unbiblical. What's the antidote, as I've said to all this? Look at page 19. We have a number of passages that drive home the idea that self-love is unbiblical. So what's the answer? Other-oriented living, and that's taught consistently in, in Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So as I have an other-oriented approach, that the first other that I ought to be focused on is the Lord himself. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then, of course, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, about two-thirds of the way down. And there are other passages like Romans 12.10 and Ephesians 5.21 that teach the importance of living for others. Be devoted to one another. Submit to one another. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So where does this preoccupation with myself and how I'm doing and my performance and what other people think and what I think of myself, where does that come from? Well, it's a result of the fall. On page 20, you know, they, instead of being focused on, on God before the fall and before the entrance of sin and the pleasure of, of God, Adam and Eve now become focused on themselves. They become focused on one another in a negative way. Notice the paragraph, second paragraph. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were not aware of their nakedness at all in the sense that they weren't self-conscious about it. In addition, this passage that says they realized they were naked shows that the first fear mankind ever had was due to an enlarged sense of self-awareness. Apparently, the perfectly sinless conditions before the fall gave them no reason to think about themselves, no need to respond to anything in fear or defensiveness or to boost and protect their image. They had a totally other-centered outlook and it eliminated any need to establish a self-image. Their interest was in each other upon fellowship with the Lord and in the things about them in the universe. Genesis 3, 7 through 11 shows that man's self-focus was a result of the fall. So one author puts it this way. He created us in such a way that we normally are not the objects of our own attention. Of course, we can see different parts of our bodies, but those do not give us a picture of ourselves or usually attract our attention. To really see what we look like, we need a mirror. God's design gives us, though, an outward focus. It requires human engineering and effort for us to look back at ourselves. Thus, an over, overly active self-consciousness is not healthy. 
So how do we lose ourselves? Decreasing your awareness of self is the biblical solution. But it's not easy and it's not natural. And it begins with and continually demands what Jesus called death to self. He said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? And when it says taking up the cross, contrary to the way we often use this, you know, we've got somebody who's a neighbor who's giving me a hard time, um, you know, my dog, not to pick on dogs, but, you know, my dog has to go to the vet because my dog's got some ailment we're trying to figure out. Uh, Lord bless your dog. But that's not your cross to bear. Top of page 21, taking up your cross is serious language having nothing to do with the little burdens of life. Crosses serve only one purpose. People die on crosses. And our daily task is to deny ourselves, our own interests, our desires, our needs, and all the other parts of self-oriented living and instead pour ourselves out in service to God and others. Now, I would just say one last thing and we are done. When it says there, you know, you die to yourself you, you, because you take up your cross. And so you deny your, your needs and desires and all of that. Perhaps a better way to say that is you have replaced your selfish needs and your selfish desires with God-honoring desires. There is no such thing as a person who has no desires. The question is the nature of those desires. You were made to desire, but you were made to desire God. And so the issue is not for you to, you know, in Buddhism, it's to just, it's to literally have no desire because desire is the root of evil, says Buddhism. Well, there is no such thing. You're going to have desires. The question is the direction of those desires and the beneficiaries of those desires. And what Jesus does is he replaces our desires. And the question for you and me is this. Do we believe that if I pursue the desires that Scripture lays out, that it will be better than if I pursue the desires that I naturally have? Do I believe it will be better? If you believe it will be better because God says it's better, then you'll do it. If you don't believe it will be better, then we'll continue to follow our own selfish desires. So which is better? The city in the future, Hebrews 11, or the city now? Remember, the, remember what the writer of Hebrews says about those in faith's hall of fame. They knew that they had better and lasting possessions. You guys remember that? To, to, to invest myself in other people now, it is better. They believed that. That's why they did it. They believed that they had a city whose builder and maker was God, and therefore this city and this stuff I don't have to invest myself in. I can lay up treasures for myself in heaven because I know it's better. So we're going to stop and pray, but just... As you leave here, take that with you, dear friends. Take with you the idea, 
what do I believe is better? Do I believe that following Jesus really is better and that if I lose my life, I will actually find it? Do I believe that? Did Jesus know what he was talking about? Can I leave it on the field and leave it on the floor for Jesus? And it'll not only be good, it will be infinitely better? Or do I believe the stuff that I naturally want that everybody else wants is actually the stuff that really matters? And when you answer that question, it will set the direction of your desires in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to focus upon these matters of how we speak to ourselves. In the recesses of our own minds and in our hearts, Lord, we are constantly transacting with you, either in a positive or in a negative way. We are every moment of every day living life before the true and living God. And yet, Lord, do we, in that transacting, in the recesses of our hearts, when we're confronted with choices, we often, often forget who is most important. And we naturally gravitate toward what everybody naturally gravitates toward, the fulfillment of our own desires. And you test us as to whether or not we believe that you are worth the forfeiture of those things that we think will bring us joy and happiness. Will we trust you that if we follow you and we devote our lives to you, that we will not only be as happy, we will be eternally joyful. But do we believe that? Do we believe that you can do that in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of loss, that we can still have treasure beyond what anything this world can offer? Do I believe that? Oh, Lord God, I believe, but help my unbelief. And my brothers and sisters here believe, but help their unbelief as well. And help us as we go this week then to focus upon that paramount issue. Who do I believe can bring the most satisfaction? You have said it's found ultimately and only in you. Help us to believe that and then act upon it. Help us to glorify you as a result in our activities, in our workplaces, in our homes. Grant us safety and bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.